as we dig into the book of Numbers today, which I know just sends like excitement down your spine, yay, Numbers, uh, I hope that you're getting a lot out of this series. I know it's tough. It's kind of slogging along one foot in front of the other, just it's difficult, kind of like what they went through in the book of Numbers, right? It really comes out in the text. But man, there's some good stuff here to learn about who God is and how he leads his people. So open up to Numbers chapter 20. We're going to be doing the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of 21, or actually all of 21 today. And as you're turning there, there's an old joke, kind of goes like this. Imagine a guy's walking along a cliff, and he slips and he falls, and, and as he's falling, he, he grabs onto a, like maybe a tree root or something. And he's just dangling there, holding on for dear life. And he cries out, like he tries everything he can to get back up. There's no way he can save himself. He knows this is it. He can only hold on for a little bit longer, and then he's doomed. And he just, in his desperation, he cries out, Lord, save me. And God shows up. And the guy goes, oh, thank you, Lord. I need your help. I'm, I can't hold on any longer. I need your help. Will you please rescue me? And so God says, absolutely. Let go. And the guy says, what do you mean, let go? He's like, you asked me to save you, to rescue you. I'm going to rescue you. You need to trust me. I need you to just let go. I've got you. You'll be fine. Just let go. And the guy's like, oh, come on. If you could just give me a boost back up, I'll be okay. Maybe make this thing grow a little bit longer till it reaches the ground. God's like, no, you just need to let go. You need to trust me. The guy thinks it over, debates his options. And he looks to God and he goes, is there anybody else up there I could talk to? (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? Like, it's a funny little story, but it kind of hits home sometimes. Where we come to the word and we come to God's word, we see God's ways, we see his character, we see what he wants, we see how he works. And yet so often we want to go, God, is there there just some other way? Can we do it our own way? way? Is there somebody else maybe? Maybe what if I could be in charge for a little bit and we could do it my way? How about God, we try that? We, we want to be saved. We want to be rescued. We just always want it on our own terms, in our own way. And this often sets up a cycle in our lives, in a cycle we see in scripture. Sometimes we're doing really well. Maybe we're really trusting the Lord. Maybe you grew up going to church, going to Sunday school, going to VBS. Maybe you came back to the Lord and you're back in church like you're doing great, reading your Bible. Things are great. Then you kind of start doing your own thing, going your own way. You start losing purpose, losing hope. Maybe you get in trouble. Cry out to the Lord. God comes along. He's like, okay, great. I love you, man. Let's bring you back. Let's get back on track. And things start going better again. You start going your own way, getting in trouble. Maybe you can identify with this pattern. Just seems like this cycle that goes round and round and round. And it's like, is it ever going to end? That's a really good summary of the book of Numbers. Because they go round and round, over and over again. God rescues them. They cry out. They're going to be faithful. Yeah, God, this is it. We're turning over a new leaf. Then the next passage, you flip it, and they're crumbling, and they're complaining, and they're crying out against the Lord. They're saying he's wrong, and they want to do their own thing, and everything begins to fall apart. And this overview of this Old Testament, very archaic book, we're looking at this idea of glory and grace, and grumbling in the book of Numbers. 
And it kind of is a, a representation of that pattern that goes on. God displays his glory. He shows grace to his people. And then they just start complaining again and grumbling against him. And the pattern goes on and on. And there's this feeling over all of it. When is it going to end? Like, it's like this long journey, which it is, through the wilderness, coming out of Egypt, going into the promised land. And there's this feeling, and that's why I called the series this, are we there yet? Like, come on, God, when is this journey going to be over? And we can say, yes, we have arrived. And you know, I've got four kids. We travel a lot. We love to travel. Um, we don't fly a whole lot because it's way too expensive. So we do a lot of driving. And, and man, after you're in the car for like 16, 17 hours, you're tired. Kids are tired. They're grumbling. Parents are tired. They're grumbling. Everybody's just grumbling. And, and that question comes up over, are we there yet? And at some point in the journey, you know you're getting close. And it's funny because I remember as a kid, it took about three or four hours to get to my grandparents' house. That was like an eternity. Now, as a family, we drive out to Kansas City. We've got some family out there, and it's about 16, 17 hours. And, and sometimes we drive it straight. And I'll tell you, when there's three hours left, I'm like, we're almost there. It's only three hours. It's amazing the difference perspective gives you. But you get to that point in the journey where you think, it's, I can almost see it. Like that flag has shown up on my GPS. It's that close. We're almost there. And that's where we are in the book of Numbers. Moses is tired. We saw that last week. We saw how he grumbled on his own. He, he took a moment that should have pointed to God's glory and he took it to justify himself and, and bad things happen. We see that the people, the Israelites that are going through the wilderness, they've been doing this for like 38 years. It's just gone on and on and on. But here they are, as we walk now from chapters 20 through the end of the book, they're, they're like almost there. They're so close. And the book kind of begins to pick up speed as they get closer and closer to this deliverance, this promised land that God has said he is bringing them back to. But man, they're struggling along the way. And if you're not familiar with the book, it it. it begins actually in the book of Exodus where they're trapped in Egypt. They're enslaved and God rescues them. Maybe you've heard of the crossing of the Red Sea. It comes out of that time. He brings them into the wilderness. And he says, I'm taking you to the promised land. And at the beginning of the book of Numbers, they, they get, actually it's around about 13 or chapters 13 or 14. They get close. They're right on the edge and they're about to go in. And this is great. Like this journey that should just take a couple weeks, maybe a month or two. They've, they've made it. This is great. And they get to the edge of the promised land and they say, God, you're wrong. There's no way this is going to work. You should never have brought us out of Egypt. You should never have sent Moses to deliver us. In fact, they say we're going to kill Moses and we're going to go back to Egypt. We would rather be slaves than to go where God is leading us. And the whole book pivots. And God says, here's what's going to happen. My way, my plan, my purpose will be fulfilled. Because God's plans never fail. But he says, because you have rejected me, this whole generation that left Egypt is not going to go into the promised land. 
They're going to die in the wilderness, and your children will inherit this promise. And that's why the book of Numbers goes on and on and on. That's why there's these 40 years, because they are waiting for a whole generation to pass away, for God to fulfill his promise to the younger generation. And here they are, so close. They've been waiting for this, struggling with this for so long. And we looked last week at the beginning of chapter 20, where Miriam, Moses' sister, who had a big role to play in all this, she dies. She's part of that other generation. And then we saw that Moses, he made this huge mistake. He, he Instead of giving glory to God, he kind of took it for himself. He pointed to himself, and God tells Moses, hey, you're not going to get to go into the promised land either. And it's hard. But what's amazing is that Moses keeps going. He keeps on leading God's people. He keeps on being faithful. Not perfect, but faithful. So here we are picking up the story in the middle of chapter 20. And I want to walk through the end of 21. And we're going to skim over a bunch of it and just kind of summarize it. And then I want to go back and really focus at one particular passage where God shows us something amazing. In verses 14, chapter 20, verse 14, uh, all the way through the end of chapter 21, it's kind of a traveling passage. Israelites went here, this happened, and they went here, this happened. We're not going to go into all the ins and outs of the details here. But it basically starts with they're on their way to the promised land, and they have to go through this land of Edom. Another word for Edom is Esau. Esau might be familiar to you. See, there was this guy, Jacob, had this relationship with God, and God changes his name. Do you remember what God changed Jacob's name to? Israel. So Jacob's family are the people, his descendants, are traveling through the wilderness, being brought out of Egypt into the promised land. That's the nation of Israel. Edom, kind of like their distant relatives. And I think there was this thought like, hey, we're going to be able to go through the land of Edom. Like they know us, we know them, we're relatives, we share a history. So they send a really nicely worded message. Can we please pass through your land? And Edom comes back and says, no. There's this nice route. It's recorded in history. It's called the King's Highway. It goes kind of from Egypt up through Israel and, and on into the Middle East. And they just like, hey, man, we're sticking to the road. It's no big deal. Everybody else travels the road. Well, there are a couple you know, million people. Edom says no. In fact, Edom brings out their army and like stands at their border and kind of daring them to come in. And Israel has to turn around and go another way. I don't know if you've ever had that on a long journey where you're like almost home and then there's a detour. I hate that. It's so frustrating. It's like, really? Now? Imagine 38 years waiting. And it's like, I just got to go through there. God, what are you doing? It's frustrating. It's disappointing. At the end of chapter 20, Aaron dies. This is Moses' brother. So now he's lost Miriam, his sister. He's lost his brother. Aaron's also the high priest. And again, there's just this frustration and disappointment as this journey goes on and on. But there's also a beautiful picture of hope. Aaron's son, Eleazar, is going to be the high priest. This promise of God, this way of God will continue. Chapter 21, we have a whole bunch of confrontations. 
is again, they're traveling through and they're going to go through a land. And there's a difference though, because in chapter 21 verses one through three, the kingdom of Arid comes out and attacks them. It's like, hey, can we go through? And they just come out and attack them. And God gives them victory. Chapter 21, 21 to 31, this King Sihon of the Amorites, you don't have to remember these names, tax them, God gives them victory. Chapter 21, 32 to 35, King Og of Bashan attacks them, God gives them victory. Over and over again. What a beautiful picture of like God saying, hey, I'm fulfilling these promises. Look, I'm with you. They, they are able to defeat these nations. They had no business defeating them. They were more powerful than them, and yet God gives them the victory. Things are looking great. In fact, in chapter 21, verses 10 through 20, just talks about like some places they camp. But at one place, it says God provides them water. There's no complaining, no grumbling. God gives them water, and they just bust out in song. They're singing camp songs. Everything's great. This is great. Things are looking up. They're almost there. It's a little bit rough, but they're going to make it. God is with them. But in the middle of all of that, there's this passage we need to look at this morning. Look at chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. In fact, let me read this for us. I want to put it up on the screen for you as you follow along, because I want us to get the details of this passage. You'll see some very familiar themes. People are impatient. There's no food. There's no water. They want to go back to Egypt. Very familiar themes. But I want you to watch what God does. Because God works in a very different way. And that should cause us to take notice. So look at verses 4 and 5. We'll start there of Numbers chapter 21. It says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no food, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. You see the familiar themes? If you've been with us for a couple weeks, these should be familiar. God's people, again, are grumbling. And, And we need to be careful here. There's a reason they're grumbling. This is hard. Okay, I think if we were in this situation, we'd probably be grumbling a little bit too. I don't want to just judge them. I think it's okay to understand people are struggling. It's how they're grumbling, how they're treating the Lord that's important. We see again, they're hungry, they're struggling with food, they're struggling with water, and they want to go back to Egypt. That's where there begins to be a tipping point. There's this subtle accusation, God, what you're doing is wrong, and you should do it our way. That would have been better from the very beginning. But look closely at the end of verse 5. Didn't they just say there's no food? And then what do they say they detest? We detest this miserable food. So there is food. You just don't like it. What's the food? It's the manna. For 40 years, every morning, God has caused the dew to kind of dry up and leave behind this crusty bread-like substance. And for 40 years, he has fed his people manna, 
the word literally means what is it? They looked at this stuff on the ground and God's like, hey, you can eat it. It's good for you. Evidently, it kind of tasted like honey and some cakes or stuff. Now, I imagine after 40 years, it didn't really matter what it tasted like. Probably got pretty old, but like, you're alive. And here they are going, we have no food and we don't want what God's giving us. I found a great quote by one commentator who says this, when a person's heart is intent on rebellion and beset by discontent, even the best of gifts from the Lord can lose their savor. Nothing will fully satisfy until the heart is made right. God is providing for them. And they're looking at that gift and saying, that is garbage. God, we want something better. Man, they are complaining and grumbling again. God has given them everything they need, and they're not satisfied. And yes, it's hard. It's dirty. It's dusty. It's gone on for a long period of time. But here, God, their Father, is taking care of them, and it's not enough. They want more. So what does God do? Look at verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We send when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? God sent snakes among his people. Some translations, if you have the English Standard Version, it says fiery snakes. I don't think that means they breathed fire. I think it means when they, hurt, when they bit you, it was like you were on fire. The venom would enter and it was deadly. People were dying from these snake bites. I think it's also why, in a minute, we'll see the remedy that God gives. They put a bronze snake or a copper snake, some translations say, but it's a reddish metal. This fiery snake would be lifted up. God disciplines his people with these snakes. These people do not deserve to go into the promised land. They never deserve to be brought out of Egypt. They have fought against the Lord every step of the way. They have rejected him over and over and over again. They have rejected those that God put in charge of them over and over and over again. So I know we read a passage like this and we want to go, God, you're not, that's not fair. And God says, look, I gave these people life and look at what they're doing with it. I sustain these people and they constantly just want to turn against me and rebel against me. We look so often for what's fair. Praise God that he does not deal with us according to fair. None of us would stand. After the Garden of Eden, none of us deserve to be here at all. And when we come to the scriptures and we think we're all innocent and we're all sweet and we all deserve good things, then we're going to look at bad things and go, well, that's not fair. But that's not the right viewpoint. We come and we say, an all holy God, a perfect, 
sovereign, righteous, loving God created us to live in relationship with him and we spat in his face, turned away and said, we could do it better. God, would you please get off your throne so that I can take your place? And then we're going, why do bad things happen? And you want to know one of the reasons bad things happen, especially to God's people in the Old Testament, is because he loves them too much to simply let them go. He wants to teach them. He wants to draw them back. He wants them to say, this is the path you're going on and where it leads, it leads to destruction and I'm going to give you a little taste so that you'll come back to me. Stop going down that path. And it's interesting in verse 7 because we read this and we might go, it's unfair. That's actually not what the people say. Look at what they say in verse 7. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. They get it. They don't stand up and be like, God, we were right, man. This isn't fair. They're like, God, you're right. We have sinned against you. For grumbling, messed up people, they get it right sometimes. And then they say to Moses, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. It's amazing too, because like, this is the leader that they've wanted to kill on numerous opportunities. Hey man, can you talk to God for us so that we don't die? I know we tried to kill you last week, but if you could do this for us. This is not the first time in Numbers this happens. And do you know what Moses does? He does it. He prays for them. What a heart. Again, messed up guy, just like all of us. But what a heart he has. The people admit their sin. They repent. They ask Moses to intercede. And Moses does. And look at verses 8 and 9. Look at the Lord's solution here. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is really weird. It's weird to us. It would have been weird to them. God has, like, for chapters in the book of Numbers, you could go back to Exodus, you could look at Leviticus, Deuteronomy. God has spent an abundance of time teaching his people how to deal with sin. So the way you deal with sin, you confess your sins over a sacrifice. That sacrifice is put to death. The blood is poured out. God has pounded this into his people's head. Something must die in your place. You have to confess your sins over it, and then that thing will be put to death. This is totally different. It's just so weird. It sticks out like a sore thumb throughout all of Scripture. Take a snake made out of copper, bronze, whatever it was. Put it on a pole and hold it up. Now, I need to give a bit of an apology here, correction. Last week I was talking about Moses' staff and I said something about him holding up his staff and when people looked to it, they were saved. And I was confusing this story with a story earlier in the book of Numbers and I apologize, I screwed up, okay? So there it is, that's my apology for that. I was reading this and I was like, oh, I accidentally included that last week. So I'm sorry. That was another story where there was a battle and he had to hold his staff up. As long as he did, the people did well. It's my little confession there. I make mistakes too. I'm sorry. But here, God uses a very unique way to save them. The problem, and this might seem very trite, right? But the problem that they're facing is that they're being 
bitten by snakes. But why? They're being bitten by snakes because they have rebelled against the Lord God Almighty. So there's this problem, but there's an underlying issue. The snakes are the result of their sin. So God's solution is that he tells Moses, take the result of people's sin, take the thing that is disciplining them because they are sinners, take that thing and put it on a pole and lift it up. And here's what they're going to do. All they have to do is turn and look at it. And everyone who looks at this thing, this thing that is held up as a representation of the fact that they are sinners and what it is that is punishing them, if they will just look at it, they'll be saved. They will live. They don't have to touch it. They don't have to sacrifice an animal. They just have to lift up their eyes and look on what it is that they deserve. They deserve that snake bite. They just have to look at it. And God says, I will use that to save you. Can you imagine someone in the the group? And and I I just want you to know, like, there's a history around this. This area that they were traveling through, it is known to be infested by snakes. There's a lot of snakes in this area. Could you imagine somebody, like, they're bitten by a snake and they're just suffering, they're struggling, and their neighbor comes to them and like, hey, I just heard Moses say, like, he's lifting up the snake and all you got to do is look at it and, like, the snake bite will go away and you won't die and you'll be saved. And the person going, eh, I'm okay. Oh, it hurts like everything, but I'm okay. But you're going to die. Yeah, I know. I just don't really want to look. I'm kind of busy right now. I'm doing my own thing. I don't really want to look. I I don't need to look right now. No way. What would they do? They would drop everything in that moment. They'd be like, show me. Show me what I have to do to make this pain go away. Show me what I have to do to be saved. They would go and look. They would want that grace that God is offering to them. This is a very odd little story with a really big significance. And the reason I feel comfortable saying that it has such a great significance is that Jesus Christ said it had great significance. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a Jewish leader, a scholar of the Old Testament, somebody who would have had these passages memorized backwards and forwards. And Jesus, as a master teacher, is pulling things out of the Old Testament to bring into the conversation to show this guy, Nicodemus, what he's talking about. Nicodemus is trying to figure out, how can Jesus say that there's another way of salvation? How can someone just believe in who God is sending and be saved? How can that be possible? Don't they have to abide by all these rituals, all these rules? And Jesus has this main point. He talks about being Born again. And the guy doesn't understand. What do you mean born? You can't be born again. How, how do you go back and be born out of your mother a second time? He literally says that. He's really struggling with this. And it's in this passage that we have probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. Even if you know no other Scripture, you might be familiar with this one. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You'll see this. You watch baseball games, football games. Somebody's sitting there with a sign. John 3.16. There it is. Powerful verse. Great verse. And it's about salvation. God loved the world so much, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you want to understand God's way of salvation? It's the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ. It's through believing in Jesus. Now Nicodemus would be thinking, wait a minute, that can't be. The Old Testament law says we have to do certain stuff to be saved. What's fascinating is, do you know how Jesus set up John 3.16 with John 3.14 and 15? He says this to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. See, that answers Nicodemus' question. Wait a minute. God's law has always taught us we have to do certain things in order to be saved. And Jesus says, that's not true. God put something in the Old Testament where all they had to do was look at something and be saved. The snake that Moses lifted up represented God's punishment. The snakes that he sent among his people. Jesus on the cross represents the punishment for our sins. We deserve to be the one dying on the cross. We deserve to be the one punished for our sins. We deserve to be the one being put to death. It should have been us on the cross. But instead of us being lifted up on the cross, Jesus took our place. And all the people had to do was to look on this thing that was made a spectacle of, this thing that was lifted up and said, look at this. Jesus was put on the cross and lifted up. He was made a spectacle of for us. Could you imagine someone walking by in the wilderness as Moses is holding this snake up and the people are dying from snake bites and they're turning and they're being saved and they're looking at this going, that's silly. Like, why would you take the thing of your greatest torment, your greatest shame, the whole reason you're getting bit by snakes is that you sinned against your Lord. Why would you want to look at that? Why would you want to turn toward that in order to be saved? Like, I wouldn't want to see that at all. I don't want to deal with my sin. I don't want to remember this. I can imagine someone watching the crucifixion. So what? Why would you want to look at the punishment for your sin? Why would you want to look at somebody dying in your place? Why would you want to have to deal with that? How ridiculous, how foolish. They look at the cross and say, that is the greatest defeat. And we're supposed to look at the cross and say, that's exactly what I deserve. God wanted the snake to be lifted up. And he wanted the people to look, to understand where their sin had led them. It's the same way with the cross. So many people hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and they can't get past that idea that we deserve death because of our sin. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to deal with it. And so it's, it's easy sometimes as Christians to leave that part off 
and just say, well, Jesus just wants to make you a better person. He just wants to come in and bless your life and make it better. And all that is true, but you can't skip the starting point. When we look at Jesus on the cross, when we truly trust in him as our savior, we are accepting, I am a sinner. That's why he had to die. It wasn't just an example of his love. It was a demonstration that that should have been me and he took it in my place. And then all we have to do is turn and trust in Jesus. Jesus isn't on the cross today. We don't have to go somewhere in the world and look on him and then we're saved. But we look through eyes of faith. We trust in him and say, I believe that he died in my place. I trust that what he has done is for me. Now, the snake was just a symbol. That snake on the pole, it was just a hunk of metal. It didn't do anything. Jesus on the cross is not just a symbol. He took our punishment, bore our sin, was raised from the dead, and therefore can promise new life, eternal life, to all who believe. He took our place. He took our punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great passage. He took our sin and all the punishment we deserve and he put it on his son and Jesus Christ died in our place. That's the gospel. And all who look on Jesus and trust in him as their savior might become the righteousness of God. We are raised to new life. The death, the sin, the punishment is taken away. Isn't our God amazing? As an amazing author, not just of scripture, but of all of history. As God was planning out how this whole Exodus thing would go and how the book of Numbers and everything else, he's like, you know what? I'm going to have this time of a serpent put on a stick. And one day I'm going to use that to teach my people about my son Jesus and what he has done for them. I love how God has planned all of this from the very beginning. I said earlier that I couldn't imagine one of the Israelites saying, yeah, I know the serpent's there, I'm just not going to look. But I have seen many people in my life and in my ministry saying, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus is there. I'm just not going to look. I'm just too busy, got my own stuff going on right now. I think I've got this. We're very proud people. I think we can handle it all on our own. But often that's because we don't understand our sin. We don't understand the depths of the consequences of our sin. And so we don't want to look at the cross. We don't want to come face to face with just how awful our sin is. We want to try to find our own way and our own solution. But God looked at us and said, look, here's what you need. I'm going to put my son on a cross in your place. And I'm going to hold him up and I'm going to say, look, he's dying in your place that you might live. The cross is God's merciful solution to the problem of our sin and death. A solution that brings him glory is for our salvation and our good. It is grace given to us grumbling people. 
It is the truth that breaks the cycle of just constantly coming back and trying a little harder and things go well and then it falls apart and we try harder, things go well. The cross breaks into that and says, God has saved you and raised you to new life through Jesus Christ. The Son of God took the punishment for our sins and was lifted up so that the whole world throughout all of history could look, look up and be saved. Let us pray. Father, I pray that we would have a question in our hearts for each one of us. Will we look to Jesus and be saved? Or are we like that guy just hanging off a branch saying, man, is there any other way? Could I just have some options? Father, you prepared us for Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. You gave us these beautiful, difficult, but beautiful pictures preparing us to teach us about who Jesus is and what he would do. And Father, you also teach us through these stories, through these these historical accounts of what you did with your people, that we need you. We need your salvation. We can't just keep doing it our own way. We see where that leads over and over again. So, Father, I pray today, if anyone is stuck on that treadmill, trying to do it their own way, in their own strength, their own power, they're looking at their sin and saying, it's no big deal, may they look to Jesus and be saved. May they take their eyes off themselves and put them on the truth of your son's death and resurrection. And Father, I pray for each one of us that that would be such a defining issue in our lives, that we would see ourselves through the cross and say, I am saved through Jesus, therefore I will live for him. I will demonstrate your glory, your grace through every situation in my life. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy for us grumbling people. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.